Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thankful to be with you all and get into the Word of God together. Yeah, like Kevin said, we're, we've been working through this, this image bearer series about the image of God, and uh, I'm just thankful that you're here. You know, we're going to be bringing it to a conclusion this morning. Uh, you know, one of the, the, one of the most challenging things about life as a Christian, okay, not just for me, but for all of us, is that we're called to proclaim the truth of God's Word, the beauty of God's design, but we're supposed to do it in a way that is full of love, right? Truth and love, speaking the truth in love, uh, righteousness and grace, in other words. And, and we are, are, these two ideas that seem like they're opposed to one another are two things that we, as the church, are called to uphold simultaneously. They must be both upheld fully. And that's been my heart and my hope over these past couple of weeks. I know it hasn't, surely hasn't been done perfectly, but that's, that's my hope again this morning as we dive into what might be the most divisive topic in our culture, um, gender and sexuality. The ideological battle that's going on right now in regards to gender and sexuality might be actually the most divisive topic that any of us will ever experience in our entire lives. It's a massive deal. Um, And I just want to start with the place we've been starting before. All humanity bears the image of God. And therefore, all humanity, all humans are worthy of dignity and respect and compassion and care. And so the question I want to dive into this morning is how does this doctrine of the image of God relate to our gender and sexuality? It's a massive question. Now, I've been preaching at Mountain View regularly for about four years now, give or take, Um, and I don't think that in the entire four years I have received as many anticipatory comments as I have for this sermon. Like, all four years put together is not as many as the comments that I've received about this sermon. Stuff like, I'm looking forward to hearing it, or I'm interested in what you have to say, or I'm hoping that you will say this or that, okay, all sorts of things, okay? Despite that, here's what I want you to know. My goal today is the same thing that my goal is every time I preach, that I would lay a framework that's grounded in the scriptures of God. I'd lay us a a biblical foundation, and then because of that, I would point our hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? That's... Always the hope, that's always my aim, that's my aim again this morning. And, and like Kevin said, we know that uh, this can't answer all the questions that might be rattling around in our brains that might be impacting our day-to-day lives. So if you walk away from this morning thinking, I wish we had talked about that, or I wish he had said this, then that's all the more reason for you to come back tonight to the panel, and we'll continue the conversation. But again, I want to start today where we've started every week with the passage that kind of launches this doctrine into the scriptures, and that's in Genesis chapter 1. It says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Stop just for a second and reflect one more time on that incredible truth. Every human bears the image of God and therefore reflects and represents God to some degree or another to the rest of creation, to the rest of humanity. This is an incredible blessing, and it is a substantial 
responsibility. It's, it's a beautiful blessing. And my hope is that through the word today, we're going to see how this weight that we bear, the responsibility that we bear as we bear the image of God, actually leads us into crisis. And there's three ways that I think this leads us into crisis. First, we're going to, excuse me, look at the crisis of self, and then the crisis that we're experiencing in our culture, and last, the crisis of the gospel. Okay, so first, the crisis of self. Two weeks ago, what I said was that if you, if we as humanity embraced this idea, if we embraced this doctrine, okay, didn't just accept it, didn't just affirm it, but if we embraced it, we lived by it, then many of the problems that we experience as God's people would just disappear, as humanity would just disappear. And because of sin, God's image is is still there. It's not lost in humanity, but it's distorted. And that makes this doctrine, this, this idea of bearing God's image, a very difficult thing for us to embrace. And that difficulty actually also begins at the very beginning of the Bible. This is a chapter and a half later. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent. And let me show you just what the serpent says to Eve. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, the the tree that was forbidden, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The original temptation, you will be like God. You see how that changes the image? We're no longer his image. The temptation is that we could then somehow exist in our own image. And this temptation that's whispered to Eve in the garden flows from the garden as the first humans are exiled from it. Our sin-struck hearts are now filled with self-focus. And so you turn the page into Genesis chapter 4, and Cain kills his brother Abel. And in a sense, he proclaims, I now hold the sovereign rights over life and death. You will be like God. He builds a city to his own acclaim, to build up his own creativity and his own glory, not the glory of God. And in doing so, he claims, I can be like God. And his descendant, Lamech, same chapter, boasts of the ways that he has taken the lives of image bearers. In his rebellion against God, he is the first human to defy God's design in marriage, and he takes for himself two wives. You will be like God. The effect of sin runs rampant from the garden through the rest of the scriptures. And just 11 chapters later, in Genesis chapter 11, we see that the whisper of the serpent has, not, has become so much more than a whisper. It's become the very creed of humanity at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is this fascinating story. It's nine verses long. It's not a very long narrative, but it bears so much weight about the nature of this crisis of self. I'll just read you two of those verses, Genesis eleven four. Then they said, come, sorry, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. Verse five, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower with which the children of man had built. Friends, this tower is the antithesis 
It's the exact opposite of everything God intended for humanity. Rather than a dependent, participatory engagement with God's work of creation all throughout the world, instead we see this autonomous, proud, concentrated group of people aiming to situate themselves in the heavens, and they say, we will be like God. Rather than exalting their creator, they exalt themselves. Rather than dependence on their maker, they aim at their own self-sufficiency. And there's some funny irony in verse 5, okay? This tower was likely very large, okay? Very large from our perspective. But see what it says that God had to do to see it? He had to come down just in order to see it. Isn't that such a great picture of how we often view ourselves, right? The way that we view ourselves in our own eyes is often much larger than our actual stature, right? We've all seen those videos of somebody trying to do something on the internet that we know that they can't, right? The hilarious fails of jumping over something or across something or climbing up something, and we we love to see people massively misjudge their capacity, don't we? But the... But we're no better. I mean, don't laugh at that. We're no better. I mean, we massively misjudge ourselves. How, however much we think that we're in control and we're capable and we are empowered, we are not. Though we bear this beautiful, weighty image of God, we still are terribly dependent creatures. And you see that in the ways that we are always striving for, living for something. Everybody lives for something. Everybody has an object of worship, that thing that they place above all else. You might think that you don't, but you do. There's something in your life that is above all else that you worship. And if that focus of your heart's desire is anything other than God Almighty who created you, it will become your Lord. It will become your master. And you will eventually find that whatever it is, it cannot sustain you and it will shatter you in your attempts to attain it. Friends, there's a reason the very first commandment given to God's people on Mount Sinai is, you shall have no other gods before me. If God is the creator of the universe, then the universe revolves around him and not around us. And we end up instead, as a result of our sin, trying to use the creation and even use God himself to our own ends. Martin Luther said that as a result of the fall, humanity has curved inward on itself. All of our thoughts are now self-focused. All of our motivations are inward and self-serving. All of our desires are aimed at our own glory. He said the fractures that come from this world flow from this kind of self-prioritization. In other words, he said, you can't break commandments 2 through 10. Don't murder, don't lie, don't commit adultery. You can't break commandments 2 through 10 without first breaking commandment 1. You shall have no other God before me. You see how this relates to the the blessing of image bearing? We've been given a gift by God. And what we do so often is we take that gift and we distort it because of our own self-prioritization in so many ways, right? God blesses us with food and we turn it into gluttony. God blesses us with his beautiful design for sex and we turn it into lust and pornography and perversion. God blesses us with money or provision and we turn it into to greed and, and, and oppression of others. God blesses us with Sabbath rest and we turn it into laziness. 
sluggardness, as the Bible says. But what of image bearing, this incredible blessing that's been given to us by God? What's the correspondent sin that connects to this unbelievable blessing of bearing God's image? It's self-idolatry. It's me-ism. Rather than bear his image, I want to bear my own image. This tendency to view ourselves as self-sufficient and capable and in charge reverberates through the whole biblical story and right up into our very lives today. Romans 1, for although they knew God, my clicker's not working. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You will be like God. Resonates in our hearts even today. This is the fearsome crisis of self-idolatry. Whatever challenges that the world might face will find deep roots in the idol of self, in me-ism. It's the principal crisis of humanity. That's a huge statement. But the core foundation of all the crises of humanity is right here. It's the principal way that the image of God comes under attack. We think that we can be like God. In any number of ways. And this crisis of self is what has led to the crisis of our culture that we, are, we find ourselves in today. Okay? And so as we get into talking about gender and sexuality, the first thing that I want to do is define some terms. Okay? Often in these kinds of conversations, what people are do is they're talking across one another because they don't agree on the definitions. The rule for the day is you just have to agree on my definitions. Okay? Unfortunately, that's how this works. It's a one-way street today. Okay? I get that you might not. That's okay. We can talk about that tonight. Okay? But for my purposes and what you're hearing this morning, I'm going to give you the following definitions, five things that we need to understand. Okay? Number one, sex. Sex is the biological characteristics that make us a man or a woman. And these are reproductive organs. These are chromosomes. Even some studies show that even our cells themselves indicate our sex, okay? Now, we all know, I'm describing it as a duality, male and female. The Bible describes it as a duality. We all know that there are very rare situations of heartbreaking biological abnormalities where anatomical sexual organs are ambiguous or, or, or um, c- compromised in very various ways. Okay, that's, that's a true experience. It's a real thing. It's a very, very rare thing. Um, and for this morning's purposes, I just want to take that and set it aside. Okay, I know it's, it's something to be addressed. I know it's something to be dealt with. But for, for today's purposes, when I refer to sex, I'm referring to male, female, biological, physical anatomy. Okay. Second, gender. Gender is the attitudes, expressions, and behaviors associated with biological sex. Okay. This is a personal or a cultural expression that's always been seen in relation to social norms and self-perception. Okay. I am not as manly of a man as many of you are because I could care less about sports. Okay. 
That's a cultural expression of gender in American culture today, okay? That's fine, okay? It is, it is what it is, okay? But what's changed today is that many people see gender as unattached to sex, okay? Rather than a cultural expression of a biological reality, it's considered by many to be a mental or emotional reality that is disconnected from our physiological sex, And I'm going to say right now, and I'll I'll show you in a moment, the scriptures do not recognize such a separation. It's just simply not there, okay? Third, sexuality. This is the focus of our sexual attraction. The words like heterosexual, homosexual, who you are attracted to in regards to sexual expression. Gender dysphoria is a massive phrase in our culture today. What this means is that it's, there's a perceived disconnect between biological sex and gender. There's a disconnect between those two things. And then last, transgender. This is a person who is living as a gender differently from their genetic or biological sex. Okay? And they might do this in any number of ways. Things like the way that they dress, It might be things like hormones, and it might be surgical modifications of physical appearance. Okay, Those are the terms that you need to know. And what I want to do from here is very explicitly state God's design, the biblical design for gender and sexuality. Okay, This is the part of the sermon that a few years ago, even would have felt maybe a little bit unnecessary, okay? What, what I'm going to say is, like, there's no surprises here. What you're about to hear is, like, been the thing for a long time. There's nothing new here, okay? But the way that our culture views these things has changed so rapidly, it can feel hard to keep up. And so it's worthwhile to just state explicitly what God's design is for gender and sexuality, okay? And, and what I want you to hear is this. These things are given by God. It's not a choice that we get to make. It's a question of whether or not we submit to his authority as our creator in these things, okay? God's design for gender is very clear. It's given and designed by God, and it corresponds to our biological sex, okay? It's right there in the verse we've been reading this whole time, Genesis 1, he created them male and female, and it's consistently affirmed throughout the Bible in the most obvious way. And that's this. When a child is born in the Bible, they're shown to be a male child or a female child. Before before they're they're able to express what they feel, before they say what they think, before they start to behave in certain ways, they have an identity, male or female, and this identity pervades the rest of their lives. There's not a single thought in the Bible that this can be changed. Maybe you've heard this quote. Has anybody heard this quote? You do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Who's heard it? Raise your hand. Okay. Maybe you've seen it posted on Instagram with a pretty background, right? Who said this? Any guesses? Everybody says it's C.S. Lewis. This was not said by C.S. Lewis. Okay. This quote, in fact, we love this quote. It feels right, okay? It feels like we can rise above the physical being that we have, okay? Like there's something innately more special or more spiritual about our mental state, our our spiritual state, than there is about the physical world that we exist in that God made. Friends, this is a massive heresy that, that existed in much of the early church called Gnosticism. 
The idea that the body is dirty or unholy or unclean and the soul or the spirit is the thing that is pure and clean. Okay? It's just not how the Bible views these things. Your body, your physical body matters. It's not an arbitrary result of some random genetics. It is a design. Now, we are, of course, more than our bodies, but we are not less than them. Your mind, your heart, your body, your soul are all divinely designed, all beautifully crafted and intended by God. How do I know that your body matters? Because it is your body that Christ died to raise from the dead. We will be raised. We will be changed. We will be new. Praise the Lord. But we will be raised. And this is the body an old and broken and sinful manifestation of the body that you will have for the rest of eternity, like it or not. Your body matters. And so we should recognize that our gender, our sex, our biological and genetic nature are all to be aligned underneath God's will for our identity as his image bearers. God's design for gender is very clear. God's design for sexuality is also very clear. One man, one woman, for life, in a committed covenant relationship called marriage. That is the way for sexual expression. That is the only way for sexual expression. It's a publicly displayed, exclusive, lifelong, complementary relationship between a man and a woman. And it is the only God-honoring way to express our sexuality. Any departure from this design, any departure from this design, sex outside of marriage, which the Bible calls fornication, pornography, adultery, homosexual activity, Any deviation from God's design outside of one man, one woman in the context of marriage is sin. It is rebellion against God. God's design for sexuality is clear. Okay? And that sin is a declaration to God that we know better what we want, what we deserve, what we need. It's a declaration that we want to be God. And here's the thing, we can sometimes forget how narrow this design is. And Jesus showed up and he made it even more narrow, like more more precise. He goes, even if you've lusted, okay, that's that's deviation in your heart, okay? There's, There's brokenness and deviation from God's design. It's very, very narrow. And the problem is that many people in the church are guilty of condemning others for sexual activity that's outside of this design while perpetrating sin that the scriptures declare to be just as offensive. It's a very clear design for gender and sexuality. The design is clear, but the image is distorted because of our sin. Sin and confusion clouds the beauty and the simplicity of God's design. And so we live in a world where some people experience sexual attraction to another person that is outside of God's design for one man and one woman in the context of marriage. And some people experience a difference between their perception of what their gender ought to be and what they are physically made to be. 
there is not any good reason to doubt that these are real experiences that are experienced by God's image bearers. In most cases, if you hear about somebody who's, who's struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, in almost every case, you're going to hear something along the lines of, I don't want this. This is not something that people are going after. I get that there's even more brokenness in our culture now. I get that there's concerns about that, but it is not a desired experience, though it does seem to be real. Now, I'm not commenting on the origins of this experience, okay, apart from sin in a general sense. It might be mental, it might be social, it might be emotional, it might be something to do with nature, it might be something to do with your nurture, but the point is it's a real lived experience for many image bearers. A couple of weeks ago, I woke up in the middle of the night and I stood up and and was getting out of bed and it felt like the whole world was spinning around. There had been something going on with my ear. I was like feeling more and more clogged up, and I had an experience called vertigo, which I know some of you have had, okay? And I didn't realize how terrible that was until I stood up, okay? Scary, disorienting, sickening. I laid right back down, okay? That feeling, I laid in bed for like four or five hours that morning, just not, just so gross and so disoriented, okay? That's what this, to many people, is like. It's so disorienting. Because it's outside of kind of the normal experience from what we perceive. But you need to understand that at a base level, what's happening here is temptation. There's a a different set of things that are tempting people that struggle in these areas. But but we need to hear this, church. It's two very different things to be tempted to do something and to act on that thing. It's, It's one thing to feel attracted to somebody of the same sex as you. It's another thing to act on that. It's one thing to feel as if your gender and sex don't align. It's another thing to change in order to accomplish one or the other. Temptation is a result of our fallen state, and we hear even in those moments of temptation, and we all experience temptation, we hear the promise of the serpent ringing in our ears. You can be like God. You can get what you want. You can be on the throne. But temptation is not sin. We have a great high priest who has been tempted in every way like we are and yet was without sin. You can be tempted to these things. You can feel these disorienting feelings and you can still follow Jesus. And many people do. We have brothers and sisters in our church that experience same-sex attraction, that experience gender dysphoria, and are completely committed to living lives of holiness and obedience to Christ. Not perfectly, but in terms of progress aimed at that, just like we all are. Okay, Nobody lives their life perfectly apart from Christ. The brokenness, this brokenness leading to temptation, the idolatry of self is what's led us to this current cultural moment, though, that we find ourselves in. We live in a culture that has so elevated self-expression. The king of everything is self, okay? And it's clouded any ability to embrace or recognize the goodness of God's design. Indeed, our culture doesn't even recognize any authority other than that of the self. 
And what's happened is this rebellion against God's design has developed into an ideological movement. And what we need to recognize as a church is that we must make a distinction between the movement, okay, the worldview, the politics, the ideologies. We must make a distinction between the movement and the people that are caught up in the movement. Every human is made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and care, respect and compassion. And we are to treat them as such as the the people who have seen and been blessed by God through the gospel. We are to treat them with respect and dignity regardless of the lifestyle they live, regardless of the decisions they've made, and regardless of the way that they vote. Now this doesn't mean acceptance. It doesn't mean embrace. It doesn't mean endorsement. It doesn't mean that we don't speak the truth. I hope you hear this again and again, that if we speak the truth without love, it is not truth. But if we love without the truth, it is not love. Those two things must both exist as we live out our image bearing, okay? They must be upheld unequivocally and simultaneously. And so an individual struggling with issues of gender or sexuality should feel the safest of all places in the church of Jesus. A church should be a place where people can show up here and be loved even when we disagree. Every person who walks in our doors must be immediately and honestly met with the words, you are welcome here. You are loved here. We must be compassionate and caring towards individuals. This doesn't mean agreeing. It doesn't mean that we don't say hard things. It doesn't mean that we agree with everything that's being done. But we must be willing, church, to listen, to, to open up conversation, to tangibly demonstrate the love of Christ. Friends, people that are struggling with sin and suffering, those are the people that flocked to Jesus. The broken, the downcast, the outcast, the marginalized, people broken by their own sin and broken by the oppression of the world around them, flocked to Jesus. And I'm not sure that people who are feeling the weight of their own sin or the weight of suffering are flocking to the church today. We must love people with compassion and care. And the movement, on the other hand, is something that must be confronted with courage and clarity. Not because we want to grasp for greater cultural power, not because we want to make a name for ourselves, but because we have seen the way to the greatest human flourishing, okay? Our culture has demanded that we not only acknowledge, dare I say, affirm the experience of individuals, but that we wholeheartedly embrace any decisions that they make as a result of that experience. We must recognize that these movements are incredibly destructive. We have no excuse for not loving people and simultaneously the church cannot and must not affirm the movement. There's all sorts of reasons I could give you for that. I'm just going to give you one this morning. Poudre School District recently did a survey of students and of the 28,000 students, they found that about 30%, about 8,000 students identify with the LGBTQ movement. 
It's about 8,000 students say that they wouldn't conform to a, a homosexual sexual ethic or feel some disconnect in their, their gender and biological sex. As a result of that, almost 5,000 kids are struggling every day with thoughts of suicide. There are 5,000 kids in our city right now because of the brokenness of a movement that has been pressed on them that want to kill themselves. Just we, we, we should lament. There are so many image bearers suffering as a result of the embrace of self-idolatry. These movements in our society are leading, leading to massive destruction in the lives of children. And the church, I mean, we've been saying this all along. If this doctrine matters, it matters most to those who are most vulnerable. We must be embracing and caring for and meeting people in their needs. Okay? It matters most to people like children. We must, church, we must protect children uh, from being led into areas of deceit and confusion and lifelong harm. Friends, this, this primarily is going to start with parents. Okay, there's so many parents in this room. Let me just talk to you for one second, okay? Parents, you have to be aware of the ideologies that exist and the curriculums that exist in your, the school that your kid's attending. You have to be aware of the way that your kids are being influenced, okay? If, if your child is on the internet and looking at social media, you must be talking to them. That's it. You must. You have to be engaged, talking to them about this, asking them what they know, asking what they're hearing, showing them the beauty of God's design, showing them that the beauty of the Bible is not just about some guy, some grumpy dude in the sky that's laying down a list of rules. That's not what it is. What we see again and again and again is that God's design overlays with human flourishing in a way that is perfect and beautiful and good. It's almost as if the one who gave us the instruction of the Bible understands how we're made. We see that again and again, okay? For the rest of you, I mean, for all of us, pray for kids. I mean, God is the only one that can, can really protect, who can really reveal sin, who can really reveal the brokenness of, of heart motives, okay? We have to be people that are showing the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. We're all bent towards meism. We're all bent towards this self-focus, okay? So help people that are around you, engage them, and help them see how to order their loves properly, not just aimed at obedience, but aimed at affections. Okay, here's a moment of confession. Okay, this is not, don't hear the parents, don't hear this as rebuke. This is confession. Can't we so often aim for our kids to just do what we want them to do rather than engaging their hearts? Man, it's so much easier to just be like, don't do that. Just stop it. It's so much easier. And yet we must be engaging the hearts of these kids, our kids. Anyone can volunteer at schools and just go be salt and light in the midst of all this wake of destruction. So go, be salt and light, care for kids. You don't have to preach the gospel on a soapbox every time, just serve a meal, assist in a classroom, cut out construction things, I don't know. 
Serve kids. Be there. Be salt and light, friends. There's, there's simple ways that we contend for the truth of God's design, and we must do what we can. But it must, must be done in a way that shows compassion and grace, even for people, even for people who actively promote this harmful ideology. Grace and care and love. Even for them. Okay, what's the hope here? <laughs> In the midst of so much confusion, there's so much hostility, where can we find hope? How can we truly find hope in the midst of this crisis of the self that's led to the crisis in our culture? The only way out, the only way to true image bearing is ironically through one more crisis, the crisis of the gospel. And this is an even greater crisis to individuals. I was talking to a friend in our church who deals with same-sex attraction, is consistently fighting for holiness, consistently fighting for obedience to Christ, even in the midst of it. And and here's what this person said. One of the bigger arguments against the Christian perspective here is that if you conform to what Christians say that you should conform to and submit to God's design, then you are surrendering who you truly are, which is Really ironic because they're exactly right. The gospel calls us to complete surrender. We who used to, uh, complete surrender who we used to be in order to, to live more fully. Okay, the world around says, don't you dare make me deny myself. And Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Now we talk about cross-bearing in silly ways, don't we? Is the church like, oh, my favorite show got canceled. It's just the cross I've got to bear, Right? <laughs> I got a parking ticket. Just the cross I got to bear, you know? It's because we live this, like, we live such a cushy life that any, any perceived slight discomfort feels like persecution. These words are an absolute disaster to our identity. They call for utter destruction of self-idolatry. Embracing self-expression, embracing me-ism is so counter to the gospel. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's a radical reorientation of our priorities. And you see this and you, you realize like the gospel is not about who's right and wrong. We're at war in this culture and that's not even what it's about. It's not about who's got a better picture of what's going on in the world. God's got the best and only picture of what's right in the world. It's about who's humbled before their creator. Don't be fooled, friends. The gospel is an absolute crisis. It's an act of loving pain. It's like surgery for the soul because all of that darkness inside must be forcibly removed and we don't want it to be. How on earth can we do that? Where do we find the fuel for that kind of life? We do it by having this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the perfect image bearer. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And he went lower and lower and lower to lift us up. He was imprisoned so that we could be set free. He was emptied so that we might be filled. He was perfectly obedient so that we could receive fullness of grace. He was broken that we might be healed. He was killed so that we might live. The only way to true image bearing is alignment with our creator through the cross of Jesus Christ, the one who blazed the trail for us. That's hard. And so in light of that cross that we bear as his people, I want to say something to us as I close, okay? First, the primary people I have in mind as I kind of was thinking through this is th- those of you who are struggling with these thoughts, okay? Disconnected gender and sexuality or, or attraction that's outside of God's design, okay? But, but also for just anybody who, who feels the weight of their own self, own self-idolatry, okay? Just hear this. Every person who pursues Christ does so at the expense of ourselves. All true Christians feel the weight and the brokenness of our lives. We understand that what feels right is often painfully opposed to what Jesus demands of us. Whoever embraces a life of following Jesus this, this life of costly discipleship will never regret it. You will find trial and suffering. You will find that this life in following Christ is harder than it would be otherwise. And you will find that it's more joyful than you could ever imagine. And in the midst of the grief that we feel as we long for our eternal home, what we will find is that the the grace of God is more than abundant, that he will meet us in a hundred little ways all the time. And we realize that suffering and hardship when it's carried as a cross is never without purpose. It's never without um, hope. It will never extinguish your hope. If you are at the end, you're feeling stuck and broken and down, He will not snuff out a smoldering wick. A bruised reed he will not break. If you trust Christ, hear this, all of your suffering is temporary. All of your affliction is light compared to the weight of glory that you will be strong enough to bear when Christ calls us home. Every experience, every drop of your suffering is therefore producing something in you that is far better. Nobody who has forsaken friend, family, identity will not find abundant reward, greater reward in Christ. Everyone who gives up themselves 
to follow Christ. We'll be blessed. And so do not lose heart. Hope in Christ. Hold on to Christ with everything you have. Cling to the truths of the word. Trust in his promises and he will not disappoint you. We were made by God. We were made for God. And church, one day, all of our cross-bearing days will be over. All of them. That's the hope, isn't it? That one day, all the brokenness, all the war, all the anger, all the bitterness, all the self-love will be gone and we'll find that there's not a single thing that we've sacrificed for the kingdom of God that goes unnoticed. We'll find that if we've walked away from community or riches or comfort or the life that you expected or dreamt of, you will receive many times more in return for your faithful obedience. And it will all have been worth it.